Let me pray for us. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the good gift of your grace. How we thank you, Lord, that in your grace you even give us your word, where you tell us everything that we need to know, everything that we could know about you. So, Lord, as we examine your word tonight, particularly your word from the fourth chapter of Philippians, pour out your spirit upon us that we would understand who you are and who we are as a result of the the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Holy Spirit, write your word on our hearts. Give us faith to see ourselves as people who are fully righteous, fully loved because of Jesus. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Philippians chapter 4. If not, you can look at the very large screen (laughs) in the front of the room. We're going to be looking at... um, a somewhat long passage this evening, but we're only going to be focusing on part of it. Uh, I'm reading all of it just for uh, for context. So we're going to read Philippians 4, verses 4 through 13. This is God's word. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, a passage from Philippians isn't necessarily where you would think we would begin talking about repentance, which is what Derek asked me to come and preach about tonight. And yet I think that this is actually a great picture of what it looks like to walk in repentance. Let me give you a bit of a, um, uh, an, an illustration of what I'm talking about. Have any of you seen the movie Les Miserables? A musical? The movie's probably somewhat the same. Um, not always, but... Um, Les Miserables is a movie or a musical about two men who were strikingly similar. Uh, Jean Valjean, the, uh, the, the first man, breaks a rule for a moment. 
and he spends 20 years of his life trying to keep all of the rules, trying to live a good life in order to make up for it. And the other guy, Inspector Javert, I'm sorry, I have a bad cold. Inspector Javert spends his entire life keeping every rule. And in the end, he self-destructs because he just can't fathom why all of that hasn't paid off for him. Each man tries to live the right way, but neither understands the most fundamental part of repentance. The, uh, I'm sorry, the, the most fundamental part of obedience, and that's repentance. Repentance is what we're going to talk about tonight, and it's also what these two guys got completely wrong. Because the central part of repentance isn't just what they were trying to do, to, to stop doing the bad things, or, or to keep evil at arm's length. It's part of it, but it's so much more. Repentance is not just stopping the bad stuff, but it's embracing the good stuff. It's embracing God. It's embracing who we are in Christ. It's embracing our identity as redeemed sons and daughters of God and, and living in the power that that gives. If you look through the English Bible, you'll see that there are a lot of times when, when the word repentance crops up. And there are two main words that are generally translated Repentance. You know that the Bible wasn't written in English. Um, the Old Testament was written mainly in Hebrew or in Aramaic. And uh, the, the word that's used there most often for repentance is shub. And shub has kind of a dual meaning. It means, on the one hand, to turn away. So, on, on the one hand, it means to turn away from the, the sin, the evil stuff that we do. But it also means to return. So it means to, to simultaneously turn away from the things that keep us from having union with God and to turn back to God. Shoot. In the New Testament, which was written in Greek, the word that is most often uh, translated repent is metanoeo, which means to change your mind. It literally means to change the way that you perceive things, to change the way you think about things. <coughs> Instead of seeing God as your enemy, as the one who's going to punish you, you see him as your vindicator. You see him as the one who shows you grace. You see him as the one who loves you, even in the midst of your sin. Isn't that what the Bible says? Over and over and over again, in, in the Old Testament and in the New, we have this picture of this God who comes to a people who don't deserve it. Right? In the Old Testament... Did, did Israel ever deserve God's favor? Did they ever maintain their, uh, their, their passion for him? Did they ever maintain their obedience? No. And in virtually every example we see in the Old Testament, uh, where God is coming back to his people, he's the one who takes the initiative. He comes to them. And he reproclaims the covenant that he made with his people. He said... You know what? You have turned against me. You don't deserve the benefits of the covenant, but because I'm God, because I love you, this covenant is permanent. This covenant is forever. I will never stop loving you. I will continue to keep you as my people. I will continue to show you favor. I will continue to love you because I'm God. 
in the New Testament, we have the ultimate picture of that. Where the Son of God, Jesus Christ, comes and dies for a people who don't want him. A people who utterly reject him. And he does that to do two things. He does that to to destroy the power of sin over us because he takes our sin on his back when he dies. He, He suffers God's punishment for the things that we've done that would keep us away from God, thereby eliminating any any separation between us and God. But he also does that to transform us. And it's that transformational quality of who we are in Christ that's meant to lead to our repentance. One of the the verses from Romans that I love is Romans 2.4. And you can only understand Romans 2.4 within the context of the latter half of Romans chapter 1. If you're familiar with the latter half of Romans chapter 1, you know Paul is telling the the Christians in Rome, you know what, there are some people in Rome who are really messing up. These people have turned away from God. They, They actually worship idols made in the images of men and animals and created things. And they do detestable things. They're murderers. They're slanderers. They sleep around. They, uh, they, they hate their parents. They're rebellious. That's the, the latter half of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, you see what Paul's doing. You see that he's actually talking about the Christians. Because in chapter 2, verse 4, he says... Actually... He says this in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, hey, I'm talking about you. You can't stand in judgment over other people who do these things because you do the exact same things. And in verse 4, he says, don't you know that God's kindness toward you is meant to lead to your repentance? And so you have Paul calling these Christians to account. He's, He's being honest with them. He's saying, look, you guys aren't living according to the gospel you say you believe. Don't you know God's kindness toward you in Jesus Christ is meant to be what motivates your repentance? Going back to the illustration, that's not what motivated the obedience of Jean Valjean or Javert. That that, that was all motivated by self-righteousness. That they wanted to do the right thing because they thought it was the right thing to do. What the Bible tells us is because of what Jesus has done for us, we are utterly free people. We're free from condemnation. We're free from punishment for what we've done. We can rejoice in who we are in Jesus Christ. We can live lives of obedience because we've been delivered, to use Paul's words from from Colossians, we've been delivered from the domain of death and transferred into the kingdom of his Son. That's the context within which Paul is speaking in in Philippians. What I'd like to do is I'd like to give you just three short points that talk about what this passage tells us about repentance and about God's grace. The first is how we can rejoice in God's grace. The second is how we can find peace through God's grace. And the third is how we can reinforce the truth and the power of God's grace. 
Let's look at the, uh, the rejoicing first. If you look back at the text in, uh, in verses 4 and 5 of Philippians 4, Paul starts out like this. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. I'm sorry, just uh, 4 and 5. So it sounds like the Lord is at hand. What, what is he saying to do? Rejoice in the Lord. Why rejoice in the Lord? Why? Well, the, the context for rejoicing in the Lord in verse 4 is what we see in verse 5, that the Lord is at hand. That God is with us. That we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and we've been transferred into the kingdom of His Son. Paul says in, uh, in uh, Ephesians chapter 1 that we already, in, if, if, you're a, if you're a Christian, you already are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Your, your destiny is secure. The, the last chapter of the book has been written. You've been declared just by God. God loves you, your dearly loved son or daughter. And God has promised to always be with his children. So his presence is with us. His love is with us. The inner testimony of his love and his power is with us as well. He gives us his spirit. Right? So in, in a lot of different ways, the Lord is, is with us and we have nothing to fear. And that's the call to, to rejoice. Now, what does rejoicing have to do with repentance? Well, remember, repentance isn't just turning away from the bad stuff that we do. It's turning toward God, but rejoicing actually has to do with both. Because if we believe that God is with us, if we believe that God really is at hand, and, and He's at hand as a friend, and not as a judge who's just waiting to, to lower the boom on us the next time we, we screw up, Choice, because we know that we have this friend who is never going to turn away from us. We, we know that we have this friend who is going to be with us in every disappointment, in every struggle, in every moment of suffering. We have a friend who not only is with us, but a friend who is able to help us overcome the, the power of those things. You know, one of the, one of the, the transformational passages of scripture in my life is John, uh, John chapter 16. And one of the reasons why I love John chapter 16 is because Jesus is so utterly frank with his disciples. John chapter 16 is the account of what happened in the garden right before Jesus was betrayed uh, in, in Gethsemane. And throughout chapter 16, Jesus paints a pretty bad picture for the disciples. He, he tells them things like, uh, I'm going to be taken away and killed. And um, after I'm taken away and killed, um, the Jews are going to come after you and hunt you down. They're going to discredit everything you say, and eventually they're going to kill you too. So, like, if you, if you got that news 
from your boss, what would you say? I would say, great. Great. Tell me, uh, you know, just lay it on because it just keeps getting better. So then at the very end of chapter 16, in verse 33, Jesus says this. He says, I've said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. What he's saying there is not just some sort of Pollyanna-ish, goody-two-shoes, uh, you know, let a smile be your, your umbrella kind of philosophy. Jesus says, your life is going to be really hard, and your life is going to end earlier than you thought. He says, you know what? In me, you have your peace. You have all of the peace you need in me. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus is the one who's gone into death and has come back. That means that Jesus is the one who is able to control not only our circumstances, but he's able to control the way that, that we interpret our circumstances. And, and what he's telling his disciples 2,000 years ago, and I think what he uh, intends for us to, to come away with today, is that the stuff that would ordinarily undo us because we think it's so big and so life-changing and so horrible that there's no way we can recover from it, stuff doesn't have to undo you. I'm over that. I've overcome it, and I share my overcoming with you. I, I've, I've transcended death, and I'm, I'm bringing you with me. Now, why is that relevant? That's relevant because we don't sin just because we're sinners. And sometimes we do. Sometimes we just do mindless, stupid stuff without uh, any premeditation. But probably 95% of the time when we sin, there's a reason why we sin. The Bible tells us that the reason why we sin is linked to desires in our hearts. In some parts of the Bible, they're called lusts. It doesn't always mean sexual lust. That's uh, just the way that we, we connote lust today, but lust actually just means a strong desire for something. It could be a good desire, uh, but it's a driving desire. And try to think what some of the driving desires are for you. If you have trouble figuring that out, just look at the particular ways in which you're tempted on a regular basis. Look at the particular ways in which you fall into sin on a regular basis. Are you tempted to be a perfectionist? If you get anything less than an A, do you, do you throw a pity party? Are you someone who has to have the right kind of body, the right kind of clothes? Are you someone who has to weigh the, the right weight? Are you someone who has to have the right friends? Are you someone who has to be accepted by his or her friends? Are you someone who has to be found attractive by people of the opposite sex? People of the same sex. Whatever, whatever the, the typical ways are that you're tempted and, and you fall into sin, that's a good diagnostic tool to help you figure out what your overwhelming desires are, your controlling desires. Those are the things you live for. 
because you put a lot of energy into pursuing them. And so what Jesus is saying here is that those things don't have to overcome you. Those things are not ultimate desires. I've overcome them, and I am giving you the grace to overcome them as well. That's, that's part of repentance. And that's part of the rejoicing that we can rejoice that uh, we have a God who is not only with us, but a God who is able to help us. So the next point. How we can find peace through God's grace. Verses 6 and 7 say, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so what, what is, what's Paul saying here? He's saying, you know what? God knows that you struggle with these controlling desires. God could step in and help you with those without you asking. Sometimes he does. Uh, in in Theological circles, it's uh, usually called restraining grace or, or sometimes common grace where God just kind of steps in and keeps you from being as bad as you could be. But much of the time, God wants us to participate with him in this process of sanctification, in this process of making us into the men and women whom he created us to be. That's where repentance comes in. That's our part of sanctification. We, we cooperate with God. We see His goodness. We, we rejoice in Him. And because we rejoice in Him, we, we give up the illicit pleasures that we would otherwise find through sin. So, what, what is Paul saying here? He's saying, God knows that you have these desires. What, what He wants you to do is He wants you to talk with Him about that. He wants to say, God, you know right now this is what I feel like doing. You know right now that this is the hole in my heart that I just can't fill. You know right now, I just want this thing. I want this person. I want this feeling. It's really difficult to let go of this. Will you help me? That's the supplication part. The thanksgiving part is what we've been talking about in terms of knowing that God is good, of knowing that uh, He is uh, the God who loves us and delights in helping us. But you see, the, the instruction, the, the command to take these things to the Lord linked to a promise. The, the command to bring these things to the Lord in verse 6 is linked to the promise that if we do that, this peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And what does that mean? Well, it's not magic. It doesn't mean that if you mechanically go to God and say, God, you know, I'm, I'm really feeling lonely tonight, and I really wish that, um, you know, you would just bring all of my friends out of the parties that they're at right now because I'm sitting in this dorm room by myself all alone. Uh, and, and 
I just want to feel happy. It's not like God says, uh, okay, I will do that. I will give you the peace you're looking for, and I will bring all these friends to you. I, I'll, I'll make your life happy. It's kind of a lame example, but... <laughs> What God does is He comes to you and He says, Hey, guess what? I know that this hurts. I know what it's like to be alone. And I am able to comfort you. Not necessarily by bringing other people into your midst to to take away the pain of that loneliness. I'm able to comfort you by telling you that it's okay to be lonely. I'm here with you. This loneliness does not change who you are. This loneliness doesn't change what you're worth. This loneliness doesn't change what you're able to do as my child. It's it's a sad part of life, but it's a part of life. And I'm with you in it. Do you know that in Hebrews chapter 4, it's one of the, the, the most remarkable couple of verses in the Bible, uh, verses 15 and 16, uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is able to sympathize with us in every way, because he was tempted just as we are in every way, and yet was without sin. And therefore, we can come to him and find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Jesus knows what it was like to be lonely. He was lonely. Think about what happened in, in, in the garden on the night he was betrayed. He took his three closest friends with him. And he said, you don't even understand what's about to happen, but this is the biggest night of my life. I need you to be with me. What did they keep doing? They kept falling asleep. They couldn't even stay awake. And he said, you can't even stay awake. What's wrong with you? Don't you realize that I need you? They didn't realize it. Then they ran away. And then it got worse. Because the only one who was on Jesus' side left him. Jesus experienced a loneliness that, that we can't even fathom. Because God turned away from him. He was utterly alone. He was utterly... Think, think of being locked in a completely dark room. For an hour, he would go insane. Jesus experienced something infinitely worse than that. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He can sympathize with you. And he can literally put his arm around you and say, you know what, I know what it feels like. I'm with you, even as you suffer with this, and I'm going to help you through it. So the, the, the peace isn't always what we would look for because he doesn't always give us the things we're asking for. He gives us this peace that is meant to guard our hearts and our minds. And, and, and the word in Greek that is translated guard there is, is the kind of guarding that a, a military detachment would do where they circle the, the person or the objective that they're protecting. And they not only keep that person's safe, but they keep everything that's dangerous out. And so this peace of God, what it does is it literally encircles our hearts. 
And, and you know, in Scripture it says that the, that the devil is firing these fiery arrows at our hearts, trying to undo us, trying to upset us, trying to cause us to doubt God's goodness. Well, this, this peace that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus extinguishes those arrows. It extinguishes those lies that the enemy throws at us. It extinguishes those lies that, that come up out of our own depraved hearts that say, you can't trust God. God's not on your side. What you need right now is a drink. What you need right now is to look at pornography. What you need right now is just to, to, to get into bed with that person. What you need right now is to just veg out in front of this computer for eight hours and forget that there's a world out there where you have responsibilities. Our, our hearts can literally be at peace because of what Jesus has done for us. And the last point, how we can reinforce the truth and the power of God's grace is in verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So there's this call to actively remember the things that God has done for us. We can do that in a bunch of different ways. We can do that through reading scripture, which is God speaking to us. And I would encourage you when you read scripture to, to read it with the expectation that God's spirit is going to help you understand what's going on in those pages. Those those pages in, in the Bible aren't just stories of things that happened 2,000 or more years ago. This is the unfolding story of God's redemption in your life and in this world. And, and one of the things the Spirit does is the Spirit takes God's words and He applies them to your particular situations, to your particular struggles, to your particular temptations. And He says, because all of this is true, you don't have to sin. So that's, that's one thing we do. We read scripture. But we also pray. That's us talking to God. We, we pour out our hearts before God and we say, God, th- this, is, this is really hard. Would you help me? God, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm feeling. God already knows what you think. God already knows how you're feeling, but he wants us to talk with him. He wants us to understand that he is a friend. He wants us to treat him like a friend. The third thing we do is we we encourage and exhort one another. There are any number of admonitions to do this in the New Testament. And and one that's strikingly uh, poignant is in Hebrews chapter 3, where it says this, Take care, brothers. Uh, This is verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 
But exhort one another every day, as long as as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So again, this is God calling us to participate with him in our own sanctification and in the sanctification of others. If we remind one another of the truth, I'm not saying to preach to one another. What I'm saying is to to be honest with one another, to, to be willing to confront one another, to be willing to hold up Scripture as a mirror so that your friends can see themselves in the midst of God's Word. And they can realize not only where they've gone wrong, but they can realize the hope they have in Jesus Christ. That's one of the chief ways that God intends to sanctify us. Through the words and the actions and the care of one another. Do you have a friend who's willing to do that for you? Do you have a friend who knows you well enough to do that for you? Many of us don't. Many of us tell our friends the best things about ourselves. But we we hide the worst things. Because we're afraid of what other people think about us. We're afraid of what other people will say. We're afraid that they'll reject us. What would my friend say if she knew that I was struggling with, with lust? What would my friend say if he knew that um, that I was deeply depressed? What would my friend say if she knew that I was addicted to food? What would my friend say if he knew that uh, I was going out to strip clubs? What do you think about it? We need to be transparent with other people. Not with everyone. You don't go out and broadcast that kind of thing to everyone. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) But there should be one or two people in your life with whom you can share those kinds of things. One or two people who are going to step up to the plate and say, hey, I I want to be like Jesus in your life. I want to help you bear this burden. I I want to help you see the goodness of God in the midst of your situation. I want you to see how the work of Jesus Christ has a direct impact on the ways in which you're struggling. I I want to be with you as you struggle. I want to help you with this. Because friends are few and far between, but they are precious when you find them. If you don't have any friends like that, will you pray that God will bring some into your midst? Will you actively work to cultivate those kinds of friendships by by being transparent with others? By encouraging them to be transparent with you? And again, we, we have the command linked to a promise. If we do these things, the God of peace will be with us. Because God is pleased when his people draw together in repentance. Repentance isn't just stopping the bad stuff. Repentance is gradually learning that we were people not made for this world. We're people whom God is transforming now for eternity. 
an eternity where we will live fully as completely righteous, completely holy, completely blameless people. Let's pray. Father, how I pray that you would give us grace to walk in repentance. How I pray that you would give us grace to see your kindness and that you would make our hearts soft, that we would respond to your kindness even as we're moved by it. Lord, how I pray that we would want to honor you and to obey you because we know that you love us and you first loved us and you came after us in love. Father, I pray for the the men and women in this room and I ask, how I ask that you would give all of us the ability to discern the difference between the good things we do out of self-righteous motives and the good things we do because you are the God who laid down your life for us in order that we would be a people devoted to good works. Purify our motives, Lord. Purify our hearts. And may this peace of God that passes understanding guard our hearts and our minds. 